Hey, thanks for tuning in to the Life Church Bible Study Online. We hope you are encouraged, challenged, and most of all, we hope it brings you closer to Jesus. Let's enjoy the study together. Hey, thanks for joining me today as we explore chapter 2 of 1 John. Please feel free to comment below things you've learned during your personal, intimate study time in this chapter. All right, so let's just dive right in and start with verse 1 of 1 John chapter 2. You are my dear children, and I write these things to you so that you won't sin. But if anyone does sin, we continually have a forgiving Redeemer who is face-to-face with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Let's stop there. So look, John spends his time addressing the false teachers and all their lies in chapter 1. So now in chapter 2, he turns his attention to the readers, the, the Christians, the followers of Jesus. John talks to his readers from a very fatherly perspective because he's not trying to talk down to them, but he's really showing them genuine affection. Because at the time John wrote this letter, he's an old man and he spent a lifetime in ministry. And many of these people he would consider his spiritual children. So John's goal in this letter, in this chapter, is trying to make his readers despise their sin and to stay free from it by avoiding it, refusing it, but then also confessing it when it happens. Because he didn't want his readers, his spiritual children, to, to take the inevitability of sinning as an excuse to sin. Because as believers, we shouldn't condone or excuse our sin, but we should be able to go to the Father without any fear. And when we do come to the Father for forgiveness, what we have is we have someone who speaks for us to the Father. John's saying that Jesus is righteous and he speaks to God on our behalf. He's really the best defense attorney that has ever existed. And what's great about Jesus is that not only is he the judge's son, but he's also paid the penalty. And because of this, he pleads to the Father for us on the basis of, of justice on one hand as well as mercy on the other. He's already taken the punishment for our sins. So even though Jesus' sacrifice is an atoning death, meaning it's sufficient for every sin of every person who ever lived or ever will live, it really only takes effect in a person's life when they confess their sins, when they accept the sacrifice of Jesus and they embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior. Let's keep going and, and read more in verse 3. Here's how we can be sure that we've truly come to know God if we keep his commands. If someone claims, I have come to know God by experience, yet doesn't keep God's commands, he is a phony and the truth finds no place in him. Let's stop there. So verses 3 and 4 give us a clear way of knowing if we're a true follower of Jesus, a Christian. We do what Jesus says and we live as Jesus wants us to live. Obedience is a clear indication of our relationship with Jesus. Now, it's not saying that you have to have this list that you follow of all these rules and you never slip up, but it's also not saying that we have to be obedient before we can know who God really is. It's saying that obedience is a natural flow of a person's faith and love of God. It's one thing to make a claim about knowing God, but your life will reflect the authenticity of that claim. If what you say you believe in doesn't change how you live, then it's not a transformative belief. It's a phony life of pretending to be something that you're not. 
Let's look at verse 5. But the love of God will be perfected within the one who obeys God's word. We can be sure that we've truly come to live in intimacy with God. Not just by saying, I am intimate with God, but by walking in the footsteps of Jesus. So look, obedience is linked not by just knowing God, but also by our love for God. Now there's three thoughts about the meaning of love and of God in these verses. The first one is God's love for people. Uh, the second one is a, a godly kind of love. And the third one is a person's love for God. But it could very well be that all three definitions are included in verse 5. So when John talks about being perfected, he's referring to the fact that God considers believers to be perfect because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. But they will not be completely perfect until Jesus returns and takes them into the eternal kingdom. So it's important to know that we can't reach perfection on our own efforts. Only God can do this by working in and through us through a process of transformation, a process of Christ's likeness. That's what it looks like to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. To walk with Jesus is to abide in Jesus, to be intimately connected. It's loving God the way Jesus did, sharing the gospel the way Jesus did, and of course, loving people the way Jesus did. Let's look at verse 7. Beloved, I'm not writing a new commandment to you, but an old one that you had from the beginning. And you've already heard it. Verse 8 says, yet in a sense, it is a new commandment as its truth is made manifest both in Christ and in you, because the darkness is disappearing and the true light is already blazing. Verse nine says, anyone who says I am in the light while holding hatred in his heart toward a fellow believer is still in the darkness. Verse 10 says, but the one who truly loves a fellow believer lives in the light and there is nothing in him that will cause someone else to stumble. Verse 11 says, but whoever hates a fellow believer lives in the darkness, stumbling around in the dark with no clue where he is going, for he is blinded by the darkness. Let's stop there. Another marker of a true believer is their love for people. It's a comment Jesus makes in John 13, 35. He says, for when you demonstrate the same love I have for you by loving one another, Everyone will know that you are my true followers. So look, this command is based on the fact that our love for Jesus is what motivates us to love others. We're able to love our enemies because Jesus loved us when we were his enemies. When we hear the phrases light and darkness, it's an absolute contrast between light and darkness, love and hate, God and the world. Because love should be the unifying force and the main identifier of the community of believers that follow Jesus. Because, see, love is the key to walking in the light. Hate is the key to separating yourself from the presence of God and from fellowship with other believers. Let's keep reading in verse 12. I remind you, dear children, your sins have been permanently removed because of the power of his name. Stop there. John is reminding his spiritual kids, the, the sons and daughters of God, 
That freedom from sin is available because of Jesus. Let's look at verse 13. I remind you, fathers and mothers, you have a relationship with the one who has existed from the beginning. And I remind you, young people, you have defeated the evil one. Let's stop there. So look, he's addressing those who are mature and young in the faith that they have victory over the enemy because of Jesus. It's a strength that is found in the Holy Spirit. And he's also speaking in past tense, which shows that if we're abiding in Jesus, guess what? We're on the winning side. Verse 14 says, I write these things to you, dear children, because you truly have a relationship with the Father. And I write these things, fathers and mothers, because you have had a true relationship with him who is from the beginning. And I write these things, young people, because you are strong and the word of God is treasured in your hearts and you have defeated the evil one. Let's stop there. John's addressing an experiential knowledge here. Everyone should have a personal knowledge of God through Jesus. And he's reminding them that there is also power in the word of God. Our strength to withstand attacks from the enemy is only as good as our digestion of God's word by hiding it in our hearts. Let's keep reading what else John says in verse 15. He says, don't set the affections of your heart on this world or in loving the things of the world. The love of the Father and the love of the world are incompatible. Let's stop there. As disciples of Jesus, we must love God and love each other. But we can't fall in love with the world. The word world here is not referring to the physical creation of God or even the people Jesus came to die for. It's talking about the realm of Satan's influence. It's a system full of those who hate God and hate God's will, hate God's word. Now, we're called to love the people of the world, but not the morally corrupt system in place in the world. We're not called to be marked by greed and selfishness, by loving riches, loving power, and loving self-indulgence. Because you can't love both the world system and love God. They don't work that way. The word love here is defined as taking pleasure in something. So we can't take pleasure in things that oppose God and be followers of God. Verse 16 says, For all that the world can offer us, the gratification of our flesh, the allurement of things of the world, and the obsession with status and importance, none of these things come from the Father but from the world. Verse 17 says, This world and its desires are in the process of passing away, but those who love to do the will of God live forever. Let's stop there. Nothing in the world system loves God or finds value in him. So John has a warning for believers that they can easily fall into three basic categories. First one is gratifying our flesh, like greed or sexual sins, being allured by the things of the world, which is like being consumed by material things. And then the third one is being obsessed with status and importance, you know, and having this real boastful attitude and carrying pride with us. Basically, all of these things boil down to selfishness and greed, and we can't truly serve God if our hearts are divided. That's why it's important that we commit to, to really maintaining values that reflect God's kingdom. Because the reality is that one day we're all going to die, and we can't take anything with us when we go. So if we're trusting in God now, 
we've already begun to live the blessed life that Jesus offers, and it's going to lead to eternal life with him forever. Let's look at verse 18. Dear children, the end of this age is near. You have heard that Antichrist is rising. And in fact, many enemies of Christ have already appeared. And this is how we know that we are living in the closing hour of this age. 19 says, for even though they were once a part of us, they withdrew from us because they were never really a part of our number. For if they had truly belonged to us, they would have continued with us. By leaving our community of believers, they made it obvious that they never really belonged to us. Verse 20 says, but the Holy One has anointed you and you all know the truth. So I'm writing you not because you don't know the truth, but because you do know it and no lie belongs to the truth. Let's stop there. During the closing hour or the last hour of the age, antichrist and false teachers are going to pretend to be followers of Jesus only to lure weak Christians away from Jesus. However, we don't have to fear these people, but we do need to be on guard and grounded in God's word. Now, John was also showing the believers that those who left the church were not really a part of it to begin with. See, a characteristic that should be among true believers and followers of Jesus is endurance. The closer we remain to Jesus, the easier it will be to discern these false teachers or people who come in with impure motives. He talks at the end of this section about being anointed, and he's referring to the anointing that we receive from the Holy Spirit. It's by God's Holy Spirit that we find power and come to know God at deeper levels. Let's look at verse 22. It says, who is the real liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is the real Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever rejects the Son rejects the Father. Whoever embraces the Son embraces the Father also. Let's stop there. See, the great truth is that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. During this time uh, John was alive, there was a man named uh, Serenthus, and he taught that the Christ and Jesus were two separate people. Now, he said that they were united once Jesus was baptized, but that the Christ left Jesus once he was crucified. So he was basically teaching that Jesus was just a man that was blessed with divine power for a real short period of time. Now, obviously, this was heresy, and John was teaching to be on guard for teachings like this that, that really directly contradict the teachings found in God's word, the teachings of Jesus, because these antichrists were going around and claiming to have faith in God, but denying Jesus. And it's something we see often today. People are okay with there being a God, but they're not too comfortable with Jesus. Why? Because there is power in the name of Jesus. John was teaching that anyone who denies Jesus denies God. And the opposite is true as well. If you acknowledge or embrace Jesus, then you do the same for the Father. So he closes up in verse 24 by saying, you must be sure to keep the message burning in your hearts. That is the message of life that you heard from the beginning. If you do, you will always be living in close fellowship with the Son and with the Father. Verse 25 says, and he himself has promised us the never-ending life of the ages to come. John reiterates 
the gospel message they already heard him preach. He's telling them to hang on to the basic foundational truths of who Jesus is and to dig deep into the word of God to find deeper levels of understanding of who God is. And as we persevere in our faith, Jesus promised us eternal life with him forever. Let's look at verse 26. I've written these things about those who are attempting to lead you astray. 27 says, but the wonderful anointing you have received from God is so much greater than their deception and and now lives in you. There's no need for anyone to keep teaching you. His anointing teaches you all that you need to know, for it will lead you into truth, not a counterfeit. So just as the anointing has taught you, remain in him. John continues to clarify his purpose in writing to these believers, and he warns them about people who would try to infiltrate the camp and lead people astray. So as we walk with God, we carry his anointing with us. And through his Holy Spirit, we learn and we grow as disciples of Jesus. And it's that Holy Spirit that teaches us how to abide in and to remain in Jesus. Let's look at verse 28. And now, dear children, remain in him so that when he is revealed, we may have joyful confidence and not be ashamed when we stand before him at his appearing. 29 says, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who lives in righteousness has been divinely fathered by him. So John closes out chapter two by reminding believers that even though there is fellowship with Jesus through the Holy Spirit, a time is coming when we get to see Jesus face to face. He reminds us all that because God is a source of righteousness. Our righteousness comes only from God. And doing right is a sign that a person is, in fact, a child of God. Our friendship with God leads to holiness toward God, which results in happiness from God. Look, it's a message to love God and to love people. Thanks for tuning in. Please comment below and tell us what you've learned during your study of 1 John chapter 2. Tune in next week as we dive into 1 John chapter 3, and I'm looking forward to it. We'll see you next week. God bless.